Would you pray with me, please? God, I'm so grateful for the reminder in that song this morning that everything we have, every good and perfect gift comes from you, even down, God, to the very breath that's in our lungs this morning that enables us to sing praise to you. And so, God, this morning, we do praise you. We exalt you. We love you. And we pray now that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would, God, bring light into the dark places of our lives. Help us to live a life of praise to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can have a seat. You know, as you dig into the book of Acts, what you find is a history of the early church, of the different people who worked to plant and start churches all over the known world. And I don't think anybody who has studied the book of Acts would say that there was any more influential figure, anyone who had a greater impact on the early church than Paul. What's interesting is that his great impact began as a negative influence on the church. Paul was at the epicenter of persecution of Christians in the first century. Now, he may not have started the persecution. He may not have been the one leading the persecution, but he had access to the people who did. Later in his life, he would describe his behavior in this negative period by saying, look, I was convicted that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to get them to blaspheme God. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Paul is this frightening, violent enemy of the church. Early on, his intention was to destroy the church. But this curious thing happened. As the persecution stepped up, the Christians spread out. And as they went, they scattered seeds of the gospel all around the coast and the shores of the Mediterranean. They would go on to spread the gospel from Spain to Italy to India. What Paul intended to harm the church, God used for the church's good. And that's just the beginning of Paul's story. In the passage we'll look at this morning, his life is changed in an instant by a personal encounter with Jesus. He did a 180 turn and became a positive influence for the growth of the church he'd been persecuting. As his life went on, he'd travel more than 12,000 miles sharing the good news of Jesus. He would write books that would later be added to the New Testament and would comprise about half of the New Testament. And he would start more churches than we would ever know. Yet in spite of his life's final story, the impact he had in the positive, you can feel Paul's regret for his former life sprinkled all through his writings. You can hear his angst as he confesses, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. In spite of all the good he would do in his life, as you read his writings, you get a sense that he just could not shake the haunting memories of his past. I think the most beautiful part of the story of Paul's life is how this one encounter with Jesus 
changes him. He goes from being Christianity's chief prosecutor to its chief proponent. And there was nobody in his life who had any indication of the change that was about to come and how dramatic it would be. So we're going to take a look at his story this morning in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 25, and see what we can learn. The passage begins with, meanwhile, Saul. You know it's going to be a long message when I can't get more than two words in before stopping to comment, right? Meanwhile, Saul. Now, I just want to be clear, Saul is the same person as Paul, the apostle Paul. Saul is not an alias that he uses when he's persecuting the church. He's not in some witness protection program later, and he changes to a new identity. We know from the book of Acts that there was a point in his life where he stopped being called Saul and chose to be called Paul. What we don't know is why. The Bible just says he did. The reason is, I think, fairly simple. Like every child born as a Roman citizen, Paul was, Saul, as he was born, was given three distinct names, kind of like we do first, middle, and last names. We just know from his life that his parents weren't very creative at naming kids, right? So he ended up Saul Paul Smith, or whatever his last name was. They didn't have a whole lot of creativity. So as we read the book of Acts, we find that he used his Hebrew name, Saul, when his life was largely about his work as a Pharisee. Later, as a Jesus follower, his work was largely with non-Jewish Roman citizens in the colonies all over the known world. And at that point, he switched over and started using his name, Paul. Using his Roman name was more helpful as he traveled and as he worked outside of Jerusalem. Saul the Pharisee? That name would just close some doors. Paul the Roman citizen? That opened far more doors for him to share Christ. So Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. And so he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way, which is what early Christians called themselves, any followers that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Earlier in Acts, a couple of chapters before, we find Saul standing at the execution of Stephen, giving his vote for Stephen's death, standing by holding the coats of people who were stoning Stephen to death. And something happened inside of Saul as he watched that first Christian die for his faith. He became more determined than ever to destroy this Christian thing, whatever this was. So much so that he was willing to set aside his loyal Pharisee pride and go to the chief priest, the high priest, who was a Sadducee. They were kind of religious and political enemies in Jesus' day. And so Saul went to him and requested legal authority to pursue these Christians all the way to Damascus, a city that was 150 miles away, and it would have taken him more than a week to journey there. But you get the sense as you follow his story that Saul was willing to travel any distance that it would take to wipe out Christianity. So as Saul was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down on him. And he fell to the ground. And (laughs) I just had this image. The light shining down on him is kind of how we're all going to feel when we finally get to see the sun, right? This light shone down on him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Now that voice and the message would have rattled him more than the light coming from heaven. Whoever's behind this, wherever this voice is coming from, they know my name. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And Lord there is not a confession of faith. It's a term of respect. He has no idea who's talking to him or what's going on. Who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. This just went from bad to worse for Saul. The answer would have shocked him because he believed that his efforts were in defense of God's honor. And now he's being told that he's persecuting Jesus. He believed that Jesus had died and his followers were lying. Now, when the voice says, I'm Jesus, it puts everything in focus. Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, alive. His followers were right in proclaiming his resurrection from the dead. And Jesus goes on to say, now, Saul, get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless because they heard the sound of somebody's voice. They saw the light, but they didn't see anyone. So Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he realized he was blind. And so his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained blind for three days, and he didn't eat or drink anything. There was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision and said, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied. Go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas, and when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Ananias probably felt a chill at that moment when God said that to him. He's praying to me right now, and I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, but Lord. I have to believe that that's probably the most quoted passage of Scripture in all time. But, Lord, we've all had times when we feel like Ananias. Lord, you're asking me to do something I'm just not capable of. Lord, this doesn't seem wise to do. This is going to open me up to pain. This is going to be uncomfortable. It's a tough struggle to do this, and I'm not sure I'm up to it. But, Lord... And though we feel the Holy Spirit's tug on our heart, our feet remain firmly planted in place. It's tough to move. But Lord, I don't know what I'd say. But Lord, my life is busy right now. But Lord, I'm really scared. I'm not smart enough. My faith isn't strong enough. I've never done anything like that before. But Lord... The tension in Ananias' voice is palpable. Lord, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. And now he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. You sure you got the right Ananias? But the Lord said to him, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my messages to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I can relate to Ananias' story. I bet you can too. There are times in each of our lives when God asks us to do really tough stuff, like confess our sin, like sit down face to face with someone that we've hurt and ask forgiveness. 
mending broken relationships, responding with grace when we're hurt, when we're cheated, when we're lied to, when we're slandered. And if our journey since January through the Bible has taught us anything, it's this. In spite of what Pinterest tells you, in spite of what people say, God is going to ask you to do more than you can handle in this life. And whatever God asks you to do, in spite of your limitations, you can do. Not because of any strength you possess. Not because of any skills or talents we might have. We know that we can do anything God asks us to do because He has promised to supply us with all the strength and all the wisdom and all the courage we need. And He's promised to walk that journey with us. So Ananias got himself together and went and found Saul. And he laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, you hear the turn in his attitude from, but Lord, look at what he's done to Brother Saul. That two-word greeting carried more grace than Saul deserved. It's reasonable to think that Ananias would have known women who were now widows because of Saul, children who were orphans because of Saul, He might have had friends who'd been killed because of Saul's work or by Saul himself. No one, then or now, would fault Ananias for greeting Saul differently than Brother Saul. It'd be reasonable if he first sought a confession, right? Or if he looked for some contrition in Saul's heart because of the bloodbath. Or if he asked for an apology. But instead, Ananias extends Grace to Saul. He calls him a brother. And he says, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instantly, something like scales fell off of his eyes and Saul regained his sight. And he got up and he was baptized. In a three-day window, the trajectory of Paul's life and his eternity were changed. This Jesus he'd been teaching against and whose followers he'd been murdering, this same Jesus was now his Savior and would lead and guide the next 30 years of Paul's life. Now, unlike most new believers, he was already well-versed in the Old Testament Scriptures. He'd been tutored by Gamaliel, who was the leading Pharisee in Jerusalem. He now saw all of those teachings from the Old Testament that he knew by heart, most of which he could quote. He knew it so well in a different light, in light of God's goodness and grace through Jesus. And So with that knowledge, he just started teaching about Jesus in the local synagogue in Damascus. Not everybody was thrilled at this. Paul's conversion, his presence, and his teaching created such a controversy in the community, such anger among the religious leaders of the Jewish community that they set out to kill Paul. There's a real irony in that. He came to Damascus to kill Christians. Now he's one of them that the leaders are trying to kill. And they were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about the plot. So during the night, Some of the believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. It is an inauspicious beginning for Paul's work and his influence. If you were able to grab a meal and sit down with Paul today, he'd say, you know, that's just the 
first of many, many dozens of stories like this in his journeys. He endured beatings. People were trying to kill him all the time. He um, was shipwrecked. He was starved. He was naked. And he would tell you how in spite of the opposition he faced, he was able to spread the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles. How he started new churches and visited ones that were already there. How he wrote numerous letters. And in those letters, 13 of which are in our New Testament, Paul's insights into human nature, into faith, into the meaning of Jesus' sacrifice and our struggle to live for him, give Christianity some of its most important teachings. They teach us the essence of how Jesus wants us to live. And Paul doesn't give us a step-by-step guide for how to live for Jesus. But in his letters, what he does give us is a picture of our preferred future, what it could look like if we follow him. Favorite place this is explained for me is in Galatians 5, where Paul writes, what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in our heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Need any of that in your life? I know I do. Paul's writings were a lifeline to the church. They were a lifeline to individuals trying to live for Jesus because they didn't have the New Testament. We have to remember that. These individual letters that people and churches got were all they had to live on. The Bible wasn't pulled together as one book, the New Testament as one book, until the third century. And so when questions and problems came up in churches, Paul would sit down and write a letter to them. And he would fill it with key teachings about the Christian faith and how we should live for God. When the church got those letters, they would read them publicly over and over again. They would devour the content. They would memorize the content. And then, when they'd internalized it, they'd pass it on to other churches so they could do the same. It was all they had to encourage them in this new faith that they had in Jesus. The writings of Paul and the other apostles are preserved for us in the New Testament. And they have the same purpose in our lives today. They give us a guide to live by. They're there to teach us and encourage us as we live for Jesus. I think sometimes just the busyness of life, we don't engage them as much as we should. So I've put together a 21-day experiment just for us as a church together to try this for 21 days to read one chapter of Scripture a day. To engage these letters and see if they have the same impact on our lives as they had in the early church. To encourage us how to live. To encourage us when we slip up and we fall. And so Danielle will tell you more about how to tap into that. But please do. Please do. Pick up your Bible. Read it together. Interact with each other. Around Paul's writings. Paul 
would spend the rest of his life. From that moment with Ananias on, he would spend till his dying breath telling the story of how that one encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus radically changed what he thought was a successful life. What he thought was a faith-filled life. And what he thought was a noble occupation and goal for his life. God flipped Paul's life and set him on a new path. The central message of all of Paul's writing is clear. That same hope is available to you and to me. If we follow Jesus, God can change our life. Some of those changes will show up in just little ways. Course corrections. We'll start finding that in relationships we have more love, more joy, more peace and patience and kindness. Some of us, though, are in, need, are in need of a major teardown and rebuild of our life. And Jesus can do that too. God promises us that he will take us as we are. But he won't leave us as we are. He'll take us as we are no matter how our past has been, no matter what we've done. I mean, if God can redeem a calloused, self-righteous, bigoted murderer like Saul... I think there's hope for every single one of us. His promise is that he'll take you as you are, but he won't leave you there. He'll shape you into the image of Jesus. And all through that change, no matter how tough it gets, God will walk with you. He will be with you every step all the way to the end.